Hello, my name is Damian Shield and I'm the Senior Director at the Center for Medical Simulation for the Institute for Medical Simulation. And I'm also an emergency physician at Brigham Women's Hospital. And it's my pleasure to be here today with an amazing group of colleagues. And we'll be talking today about debriefing in the clinical environment before, during, and after COVID. I'm going to be coordinating part of the conversation, get us started with introductions and an overview and then quickly handing over to my colleagues. Good morning. Um, my name is Stuart Rose. I am an adult eMERGE physician in Calgary in Canada, um, and I'm really delighted to be here. What a fantastic group, and very excited to share some um, discussion today. Hello, my name is Esther. I'm a registered critical care nurse here in Spain, as well a simulation educator. And I'm really glad to be with you all and with all the participants. I'm Laura Rock. I'm a pulmonary and critical care physician in Boston at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and Harvard Medical School. And I direct uh, communication and teamwork for critical care. Thank you for including me. Hello, I'm Christina Diaz-Navarro. I'm a consultant anesthetist in the UK. Uh, I also work in health education and improvement Wales uh, as an associate dean in simulation, and I'm delighted to be with this wonderful group of uh, simulationists and experts in debriefing. Hi, I'm Bram Welchorin. I'm a pediatric emergency physician in Houston, Texas, in the United States, um, and I co-lead a hospital-wide debriefing initiative uh, aimed at improving the quality of resuscitations. Hi, everybody. I'm an associate professor in um, medicine apply and tech, technology applied to medicine and I'm currently the scientific director of the simulation center in uh, Lugano, Switzerland. I'm very happy to join the group and uh, having this possibility to talk with all of you. Hi everyone, I'm Paul Mullen from Norfolk, Virginia here at the Children's Hospital of the King's Daughters. Very excited to be with you all today and learn from many of my other talented people on this panel. Hey everyone, uh, my name's Jennifer Arnold. I'm a neonatologist and a medical director of our simulation program here at Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital in St. Petersburg, Florida in the USA. Um, and I'm involved with clinical event debriefing at our institution here as we uh, roll out um, multiple stages of a hot and cold debriefing programs. Excited to be here amongst this great panel. Thank you everyone for making time in your busy lives to prepare the session and uh, for sharing your thoughts, innovations. I have been learning with and from all of you throughout the years that I've been interested in taking what we've learned about reflection and learning conversations to our clinical environment. And uh, many of you have inspired me uh, to get more and more involved in the topic. And I've learned so much from all of you. I think our audience will really appreciate what you have to share today. And so I'll let you know that our plan is to share with you a bit of a summary of the evidence and literature that is available that has been guiding the practice of debriefing in the clinical environment. As the practice has evolved, several tools or structures have been developed and published, and uh, those will be shared with you for you to know both the names and some of the content and structure of them. The panel will also share ideas around how to create a clinical debriefing program and what that might mean for you and your institution. And we'll have some wrap up remarks at the end of the session. I think as we head into the session, we should consider several ideas. First, 
is that the idea of a clinical debriefing is really a broad topic. It, in my view, it spans from the informal conversations that could happen after or during a shift or uh, in the old days, we would actually go to a bar or an office and talk about a particular case or cases, or it might be checking in with a colleague, or it could be very formal, like a um, M&M session. There's really quite of a range of activities that could be considered a clinical debriefing, and there is no current standard or really strict definitions. Everyone here has been working on different aspects of that and will be sharing in many ways what they're working on. There are certainly different point of views and when you hear people share different points of view, it isn't that we are against each other or disagree, it's just that we're creating the field as we go. Uh, so without further ado, I'd like to hand over to uh, Stuart and Esther. Good morning. Um, I'm Stuart and I'll be pairing this section with Esther Leon. We're gonna talk briefly about the current evidence and then we're going to transition into a description of various different debriefing tools um, by a lot of the people that have actually created these tools. So the initial portion is going to be addressing the literature as far as we know it right now. Now this is a field that is exponentially expanding. There's, there's a lot of research going into this area right now. Um, it is a, a new area and there are not gold standards as Damien referred to. So when you research and when you look at the literature, um, you may be confused by the various different ways and the names that are out there that describe the conversation or the team conversation after an important clinical event. Um, some people call these debriefings, some people call them after action reviews, checklists, there's various different uh, terms that people use. Is it hot? Is it warm? Is it cold? So the exact definition and the best process is not clear at this stage, but I think each person will define what they consider a clinical debriefing event. Let's start off with why not? Um, why do people not consider doing debriefings? And based on the literature, um, there was some studies in the Cochrane Review um, in the early 2000s that, that discouraged debriefing. Um, and this was a, uh, a review of a few studies um, that did not include healthcare practitioners. They were generally cold debriefs. Um, the one warm debriefing that there was actually showed some benefit. There was the study by Rose. Um, and then there was a slight increase, um, another study by Hollingsworth. Um, and this was again, untrained facilitators not supported one-off unscheduled debriefings. The one debriefing that has been done, uh, the one study that has been done um, in ED staff did not show any signs of anxiety or post-traumatic stress disorder. And I think that's the one generally that applies to a clinical environment with experienced staff. The other why not is the barriers that are associated with clinical event debriefing and making that conversation happen. And I think people are going to refer to this in more detail in this presentation. But essentially people think that staff, that debriefing is important and yet we still don't do it very often. Even when we have a cognitive aid or a supporting tool, this still remains a challenge for us. And things like time, the limited time, uh, not having trained facilitators, 
lack of administrative support, and fear of litigation are potential barriers that stand in the way. These are all barriers that we can overcome. So why would you want to debrief? What does the literature say about that? Um, debriefing associated with improved clinical outcomes. We can identify latent safety risks, improved team function. Um, a meta-analysis by Tannenbaum, unfortunately not including too many medical teams, but with multiple teams from the business world, from aviation, did show a astounding 20 to 25% improvement in performance if particular pillars were adhered to. And so this, there are potentially great advantages to having that conversation after a particular event. Another great example out of the ED and in the operating room um, is the value of a debriefing checklist. So this is where it gets confusing again, because essentially this was a debriefing process, um, although it's referred to as a checklist um, by Dr. Rose et al. Um, they saw some amazing improvements in their day-to-day -day operating room um, uh, operations and their error rate. And uh, Dr. Rock will speak further about this in her presentation. How are we going to establish our clinical event debriefing process? There are some great um, overall uh, summaries and great review articles looking at that. Um, so these three articles in particular, if you're looking at starting out a clinical event debriefing process are going to be helpful to you. I just want to note, we will be including an extensive list of the current references in the literature um, with this presentation for your access. So thank you, Stuart. So, you know, here now we are in the middle of a pandemic. And I think the need of debriefing now is more than ever. So we have seen a lot of groups trying to give solutions for speaking uh, all together as a team in COVID times. And I will, I would like to show you a little bit of the last evidence on clinical debriefing during the COVID pandemic. First of all, we have this paper of uh, a lot of institutions involved as is the discover phase tool uh, it's going to be explained by Demian before, and they just um, reshape the Discover tool uh, with uh, some added values and use uh, in the emergency departments during COVID. On the other hand, we have a really interesting concept that Laura is going to explain later as well, and that's CircLab. And here is not just debriefing, uh, they speak about the need of briefing and huddles, and they um, frame the work into the psychological support that the teams need. On the other hand, we have this paper uh, speaking about uh, how we could do debriefings uh, during the pandemic, and maybe could be as well done not face-to-face, -face, uh, we could use as well virtual uh, uh, approach debriefing. Other example is real-time debriefings after clinical events. They uh, explain a little bit about COVID times. And the last sample is a new tool as well. It's going to be explained 
uh, after uh, and uh, this is the new evidence about debriefing in pandemic times. So now we are going to see in more detail the tools in the next section. And I think Stuart is going to speak about clinical debriefing info. Thank you, Esther. Um, so my process that I have been involved with is called info debriefing. And as we mentioned, the definitions that we are aware of and using vary. The definition that I've chosen for info debriefing is a facilitated interprofessional team reflection after an important predetermined clinical event that focuses on improving the system and the team's performance. So that highlights the fact that this is facilitated. So there's somebody that, that is in charge of actually making this happen. It's interprofessional, so it's not an individual system. This, is, this includes the whole team. And there are predetermined clinical events. So on the uh, info process, in the info process, there are certain predetermined events. The benefit of this is debriefings are not supposed to happen just when things go wrong, but you actually get the type two safety approach where you're looking at things that go well. So for example, one of the predetermined things will be any case that involves intubation and CPR. Um, and we talk about what people have done well as opposed to what did not go that well. And then it's not an individual assessment. It focuses on the system and the team. So info debriefing is a novice in, in the info process at this point, charge nurse facilitated into professional debriefing. Um, there is training around this process and it's not a lot of training, it's a two hour workshop using a script or a cognitive aid. And then the process is supported by a nursing or physician champion. And so that goes into the general principle of establishing a debriefing process. And in this case, example, of, of info is the first step is having or finding champions. You need people that are going to be driving that are passionate about this to keep making this move, move forward. Um, a really key part is consultation and investment in your interest groups. So for example, in the intro info process, my interest groups were physicians and nurses. And so I spent a lot of time going to physician meetings, nursing meetings before rolling out this process showing those groups the concept of info and asking for their input and creating some investment um, and feedback even way before we actually rolled the process out. Um, and then training for facilitators. Um, I think it's important that when we try and do this debriefing, it doesn't fall down because not one person was, was uh, trained and not one person was prepared to take it on. Everybody was waiting for somebody else to do the debriefing. Um, so the training is an important component to it. Pre-briefing, before every debriefing, I think the pre-briefing is important, as we know from simulation, where you actually set the, the rules, you set up for a good briefing. And so you allow people to understand what's going to happen so people could have a more calm approach to the debriefing. And then following up, this is a key part of a clinical event debriefing process your participants need to feel that they are heard and that there's value in them actually speaking up. And the, the Rose paper in the operating room, this was a key part of their success 
where they were able to feedback exact examples of what people had um, brought up in a debriefing. And they were able to feedback and show participants that there was actually a change to the process as a result of them speaking up. So those are the general principles. Establishing safety in a debriefing process is a key part of people feeling that need and the ability to go forward. And so when we look at the info process, I've tried to break it down to how I think the safety is established in a clinical event debriefing. And so the top section is before in our environment, we had an existing culture. So we had regular interprofessional simulation that took place in the ED. So people were able to give and get feedback across the interprofessional spectrum. This was not a new concept for us. Um, there was that stakeholder consultation where we went into each of the major groups and discussed and consulted them before we rolled the process out. Then there was training. And then all the ED staff were actually given access to the, the debriefing process before it was rolled out. So there was, there was nothing hidden that was transparent. Once your debriefing process is up and running, so during that process, there are predetermined criteria. So you hopefully end up talking about things that go really well, as opposed to people feeling that the only time we debrief is when something has gone poorly. Um, the info process is voluntary. And so that makes a difference, I think, as a type of cases initially that are discussed and debriefed. As your culture evolves um, and people become more comfortable with the, the process, I think what we've seen is more and more potentially heated conversations take place in a safe environment. The info process starts with the basic assumption, which um, we have kindly been allowed to adapt and modify um, from the Center for Medical Simulation. And so we set that assumption that we are, we are curious about what happened and we know that people are there to learn. Um, Pre-briefing, as I mentioned, is a, a key part in having, setting that expectation for what the debriefing will look like. And I think this builds into the safety. People understand what's going to happen and they don't have to fear that somebody is coming with a different agenda. And then having a structured supported cognitive aid. And then after the debriefing, um, you, this is an add-on process. And so your normal process for managing stress in the, in, in, in the clinical environment, for example, critical incident stress management debriefings, um, those processes will still continue. This does not have to be a, um, a, a standalone process and it should not be a standalone process um, because personally, I am not qualified to be dealing with the, the uh, psychological aspects of stress and trauma. I, I'm an eMERGE physician. This is an addition onto the normal processes. And then at that time, all staff were reminded of counseling, professional counseling processes that we have. And if necessary, there will be a one-on-one -on -one follow up. There've been some great practice changes because of this process, actual clinical practices, uh, um, improvements in our, our practice. Sustainability is something that comes up often when we talk about clinical event debriefing. There's a lot of excitement when this rolls out, but then it tends to lag and drop down. And so ways that we've looked at trying to do this with info, we've had a info month where we're trying to raise awareness. We have regular champions meetings, creating a community of practice to keep people motivated. And then we track our cases. And that's an example of how we do this. This is an anonymous process. We don't have patient identifiers on our form, but we follow up in detail and as an example, this is um, a feedback 
email to the participants of a debriefing. And as you can see, there are quite specific changes that have been documented. This is one of our nurse educators following up on this, uh, on this case. And there's specific changes that were brought up in the info debriefing that are then covered in the, um, uh, in the follow up to the participants thereafter. So what's next for the info process? It is slowly becoming part of the culture. It is a slow process and you've just got to stick with it because it, sometimes it seems like it's not going forward as well as what you would expect. And then eventually getting to the point of reflecting in action. In other words, during the resuscitation, if people think, what would I say in a debriefing, they may actually speak up and actually say that during the resuscitation. I'm now going to hand um, back, I'm now going to hand over to the uh, team from Talk, uh, Christina, uh, Pierre, and Esther. Hello, everybody. Thank you very much uh, for having us with you. Um, I am uh, bringing this presentation on behalf of the Talk Foundation. And uh, I, with me, I've got uh, Esther uh, Leon Castellao, who is also uh, my very close collaborator uh, and is in the, in the Talk Foundation as chair of the Latin American, Spanish and Portugal division. And I also have got uh, with me Pierluigi Ingracia, who uh, has done the translations to Italian of our tool and is living in Italy for the project. Uh, I, I am uh, very happily chairing the board of trustees for the foundation. I wanted to give you a little bit of an idea about the background. Um, the tool was developed and copyrighted in the UK in 2014. Uh, and soon after that, we started sharing the concept uh, in conferences just to check that we were on the right track and that other colleagues um, you know, could, could review, give us an element of peer review really towards the concept. And that's how I met Esther and many other wonderful colleagues with a passion for education and for improvement. Um, we managed to get a EU funded uh, grant um, in 2017, uh, which has funded uh, an international collaboration between Barcelona, Cardiff and Stavanger in Norway, um, which, which has allowed us to develop the tool further and do research on it. Uh, but at the same time as that, uh, we, we started developing a large network and we felt it was very important that once that the funded ended, uh, the non-for-profit spirit of this project would maintain. So we set up a foundation in 2018, which is registered with the UK Charity Commission. Uh, I would like to um, share what our perspective is on clinical debriefing and, and, and what it is, because as, as Stuart and Damien have mentioned before, there is no standard understanding of what debriefing is. Uh, for us, uh, a basic concept is that we feel that in clinical environments, we have learning opportunities arising every day and that as teams, we can have conversations after any learning event um, about any aspect at all uh, regarding uh, patient care. These conversations um, should, be, should be performed in such a way that everybody's perspective is valued. Uh, and, and it would allow us as teams to identify ways, ways to learn and improve together. Uh, but also by having these conversations, we should be promoting a, a culture of dialogue, reflective practice and patient safety. So our assumption is that clinical teams want the best for patients are able to behave professionally during difficult situations as we encounter regularly, are familiar with their usual working environments and are also familiar with structured conversations 
uh, we often use the ABCDE approach to communicating about uh, how our patients are uh, doing or progressing. Uh, we all use the SPA tool. So we felt that that was something that we could build on. Also, we think that when we have professionals coming together from different professional backgrounds, we bring a broader knowledge uh, and experience and we can learn from each other's perspectives, which are determined by the standards of our own professional organizations. We think, we think that we should be able to debrief anywhere, at any time, safely, with or without facilitators, in a constructive and non-judgmental way, but with the focus on patient safety. So patient safety is what matters, and that puts us all very much on the same page so that we can have these productive, constructive conversations. So talk guides short focus discussions to improve patient care. Not only that, the, the background uh, to this is that what we are proposing is a values-based approach. Uh, and the values that we are um, supporting and fostering are not particularly uh, innovative. They are part of our vocation as clinicians uh, and, as, and as healthcare professionals. Uh, we want to be focused on finding solutions rather than pointing out blame. We want to be professional in the way that we communicate, valuing everybody's input, whatever their background. We want us to be positive and identify positive strategies and behaviors in ourselves and in others so that we can learn from the positive. And when there, is, when there is a difficult situation or, or a difficult exchange to be done, to try and put our attention on avoiding negative comments and choosing neutral expressions. And, you know, I'm Spanish, but I have to say the British are very good at this. Uh, there is something that every culture can bring into this that we can, we can learn from. And that we also think that it's not about making big changes. It's about making small changes, one at a time, step by step. Identify small objectives and follow them up. I'm going to show you a very short video just summarizing what our ethos is. In clinical environments, learning opportunities arise every day. Talk is a structure that guides a learning conversation between team members following a case or clinical session. This dialogue is called clinical debriefing. It should be a short focused discussion lasting no more than 10 minutes. It could take place immediately after a case, at the end of a clinical session or later at a suitable time. Having a talk conversation may be useful following good outcomes after difficult cases, when team members are exposed to new clinical experiences, after near misses or serious untoward events, or in other situations. Talk gives a structure to the discussion so that it is carried out constructively and focused on a common goal. Any team member familiar with the structure may lead the conversation. Clinical debriefing should ideally take place in quiet and private areas and intended in a blame-free manner. The conversation should focus on learning and improving patient safety, respectfully, avoiding negative comments and identifying positive actions and behaviours, valuing everybody's input, identifying small objectives and following up outcomes step by step. We use talk to find practical solutions for improvement. These small changes impact positively on both teams and the organisation.
the tool itself is very, very simple. It's got four steps. Target, what you want to discuss with the group. Analyze, what helped the situation or what made it challenging. Learn from the experience and the conversation, but importantly, decide on key actions. So these are key actions for improvement. The team members find solutions themselves and take responsibility for making these solutions happen. They are followed up according to local culture. Um, so we don't really give a specific way of following them up, but we are aware that follow-up is necessary. And we allow teams to discuss how they want to do that. We work on the principle that the small changes added together make a huge difference. And on the basis that what we're looking for is continuous improvement. So we've got educational materials in our website, which have been translated. Uh, and we've got now availability in eight different languages. And what we've got uh, available is uh, things like cards, like this one that I've got here that I take to work every day, that can guide the conversation with very, very simple wording, flashcards, posters, uh, user guides. But also we do have an implementation guide. Um, and the implementation guide is for uh, the leaders that want to implement uh, clinical debriefing in their environment. Uh, the, the change management model that we have followed is COTA's enhanced eight steps uh, which we have adapted with permission uh, and you know i won't i won't uh, go more about it but certainly it is on our website and you can have a look if you're interested we're currently um, collaborating with individuals in 18 different countries and i would like to introduce you to pier luigi ingrazia who is uh, our main collaborator in italy Thank you, Christina, um, for these exhaustive words about talk. And um, let me say some few words about the experience that we got in Italy with the talk debriefing. So clinical debriefing is not very popular in the place where I work it. And so we thought how to introduce it, especially when we translated it into uh, Italian, which occurred um, if I will remember, almost in the end of March, in the middle of March this year, so in the middle of the first wave of the pandemic emergency. So uh, we came up with the idea to include it in the pre-planned training programs. So we took the training layout and uh, we did some slight modification. So in the case for some specific program, uh, the trainees were enrolled in simulation scenarios, as we all regularly do. And um, after that, the trainee themselves conducted a 10 minutes talk debriefing. So in, the train, in this training session itself. And only after that, the facilitator took place and started the reflective conversation, either about the actions that were um, taken or carried out in these scenarios and also about the, the way they conducted the talk debriefing. So um, giving some simple hints or suggestions about how to conduct, uh, conduct it better uh, in the clinical environment. So the feedback from the participants was uh, very good. The addiction of talk debriefing into the regular uh, training activity um, which was not the primary objective of the training initiatives uh, let's say it was very, uh, was very, was very good. Uh, and the addition didn't impair the achievement of the objectives of the, uh, the training, but actually added value and was really appreciated by the uh, participants. 
So we uh, got some anecdotal report uh, now from the from our champions, and um, and these colleagues um, started to do the briefing after some difficult clinical events, especially in the beginning of this uh, second wave of the pandemics. So we are very happy uh, about this achieved the result. Thank you very, very much, Pierluigi. Uh, I'm wondering, Esther, uh, you've got such vast experience. You've been with me in this journey since 2016, and, and you've done so much work with me. Um, it, sometimes it feels like I don't need to ask you, and we're the same person. But I, I think maybe there's something I want to add at this point. Yeah, I, I just want to add that we have been working so much. Um, we, have, we are a really enthusiastic group. Uh, and we have done all this work for helping you all guys, all participants, all clinicians, and we uh, all the videos, materials, and everything are just in the website that Christine is going to share, and are free to use. So you could use clinical debriefing, uh, talk debriefing whenever you want, and you will have all the materials and all our support. Uh, in by Twitter or by the mail that we are showing. Just letting you know that we are here for helping you to put your passion into practice. Thank you very much for, for listening to this presentation. And I would like to leave you now with Paul Mulan, who's one of my heroes, and I'm delighted to be here with him. Oh my goodness. All right, well, I hope all the viewers have been enjoying this experience so far. I have thoroughly enjoyed myself just hearing from all of my colleagues around the world just about their debriefing programs and just noticing so many of the shared principles that exist that Stuart mentioned. Um, you know, there is no one standard. And I think we're just all using so many of these important principles that really build relationships, open conversations, and really just get to the heart of how we can improve care improve outcomes and just make it a more pleasurable place for everybody to work. So this has been a great experience for me to look back and see how this discern tool that a team of us created at Texas Children's has evolved over time in a number of different settings and for a number of different uses. And I was in my pediatric ER fellowship at the time in 2010. And I really loved working with other team members to care for patients who were critically ill and needed resuscitations in the ER. What I soon realized though, is that even more than that, I really enjoyed debriefing with my team members after these resuscitations, discussing what happened and discussing how we could have improved our care for the patient. And I wondered to myself, why don't we debrief all of these resuscitation patients? And so looking into the literature at the time, certainly the resuscitation guidelines themselves recommended doing team debriefing, but barriers to hot debriefing were plenty, including many of the ones that I've listed here. No time, lack of training for facilitators, no space to do the debriefing, lack of support from leadership, uh, not being psychologically safe as they were often deemed to be judgmental activities, uh, concern for not really needing debriefings because people didn't see any real improvements that were happening afterhand, and really a concern that maybe uh, the teams themselves wouldn't have accurate recall of the events that they were just involved in. But despite these barriers, one thing that we did know was that even if we did not formally debrief with our teams, the teams always seemed to debrief. 
whether it was just two people at a time, maybe at the water cooler, or as Damien said, sort of the next day or at the bar in the office. So we said, why not figure out how to get the whole team rather than just parts of the team together so that we could maximize the impact of the debriefing. So to help counter these barriers, we created this paper-based voluntary debriefing form for teams that cared for patients who had been intubated, had cardiac arrest, had defibrillated, or any other event in which the team requested a debrief. And we called it the discern form, the debriefing in situ conversation in the ER now to emphasize the hot debriefing nature of it. And it had an area with scripted ground rules for the debriefing facilitators at the bottom you can see here, an area uh, above that to capture patient and team demographics. And then once the debriefing got started, we talked about what were the plus comments of what went well, as well as the Delta comments of what could potentially be improved, as well as an area for how to get that debriefing form into the hands of clinical leaders who could then actually actualize some changes to improve the care environment. So we rolled out this program and addressed as best as we could many of the previously cited barriers. Timing-wise, we realized that teams needed some time to get themselves together after these events, and we had a median interval of 33 minutes between the end of the event and the beginning of the debriefing. We saw that these debriefings were not very long, with a median of about 10 minutes per debriefing. And in the first year of the program, we debriefed about every five days. Uh, we didn't have no training, but we had a very limited training of about 10 minutes in various staff meetings. And then we had uh, people orient to them by watching super users or people who've been trained a little bit more in the use of the form. And once they saw one, the form was self-guided enough that they could do one themselves. Concerns about no space really did not become an issue because we either debriefed in situ in the place of the resuscitation or in an adjacent room or nearby area or documentation area. To get support, as Stuart mentioned, we got our leadership involved, both from a physician and nursing standpoint, and that really helped propel the uh, program forward. In terms of psychological safety, we had explicit things such as a script that started off the debriefing. Uh, we included only team members initially to cut down on the blame or shame culture that uh, might have existed or the stigma around some debriefings beforehand. Um, we really tried to limit that judgment of people, and we also had medical legal guidelines in place uh, to limit concerns from that aspect. To help uh, counter any concerns that no improvements would happen, all the Delta issues uh, got referred to clinical leaders, and they addressed these and did closed-loop feedback to the people on the front line so that they could understand that these debriefings really mattered and really added value to their care environments. And lastly, the, in terms of the concern for the team not being able to accurately recall, this was a, an issue that I ended up addressing when I moved institutions to Children's National a couple years later. So some modifications of the tool were made uh, when I got to Children's National. Uh, the front side of the discern form was almost identical to what it was at Texas Children's. But essentially, if a patient had certain types of events, so a CPR event, an intubation, or a seizure, the debriefing facilitator would flip over the form and they'd answer several closed-ended binary questions to recall quantitative aspects of their clinical performance. For example, for CPR patients, the team would need to determine as a group if there were any pauses and compressions for more than 10 seconds. And if the team's answer was yes, then an open-ended Delta question was asked in the debriefing to brainstorm how the team could have improved their performance in this one deficit area. 
And after performing 100 resuscitations with this form, we did a video review to validate the accuracy of the team's recall of their debriefing questions. In the first 50 debriefings out of the 100, the debriefing accuracy was 83%. But over time, this improved to over 91%, with a degree of many of the errors being quite minor. And of note, the Texas Children's debriefing uh, form that we did, we debriefed about 25% of the time, um, which you can read about uh, in the paper from 2012. Um, the Children's National debriefing program that we rolled out was in two different sites, um, one at the main site and one at a community site. Um, I'll tell you the one at the community site was run by a charge nurse, uh, a, a great woman by the name of Fawn Brown. And there they debriefed over 98% of the debriefings. And I have found that when you, you put these programs into the hands of nurses and really make them in charge of doing it after these events, it happens at a much higher frequency. So that's one of the gold nuggets that I picked up along the way. This slide is a word cloud of the most commonly used words in the plus delta comments section of the discerned debriefings. You can see here many of the concepts that probably come up in your own debriefings. As one might expect, the most commonly discussed issues often revolve around team communication. So several years after I left Texas Children's, the, the discern tool has had a significant evolution. And my good friend Bram will tell you about this program's exciting developments. Thanks, Paul, and to all of our colleagues on this excellent team. Um, we've been fortunate in the years since uh, Paul developed the initial discern project at Texas Children's to go through some significant evolutions. Um, the first thing to say about discern after Paul moved institutions is that I think some of our colleagues received a lesson in the, the need for champions and the need to have um, a sustained team with sustained leadership to, to keep these projects going because they require continued input. Um, in the last year or so, we've been able to build upward and outward, partly through some upcoming regulatory requirements or recommendations from the Joint Commission, which accredits hospitals in the United States, and their recommendation about how hospitals should review resuscitation events and have active surveillance and debriefing programs in place to improve the quality of care in those. And then partly through the increased interests of some of our colleagues in other parts of the hospital outside the emergency center, and sometimes even outside the ICU environment too. So we've made some evolutions and modifications and adaptations to Paul's initial discern form. Um, and we've started to work on doing an electronic version, uh, which is going to be known as the discern SQI debriefing and significant clinical events and resuscitations now for system-wide quality improvement. So it's housed within a REDCap survey, so it can be accessed online via either a very brief web address or a QR code from anyone anywhere in the hospital. We encourage teams to use either a tablet or smartphone so the person recording the information isn't buried in a computer, and so that, as others have said, the process is portable and can be done wherever it needs to. As Paul mentioned, we often do these debriefings right where the resuscitation occurred when it's the emergency center because the patient is then left to go, for example, to the intensive care unit or the OR. Um, although for some of our ICU colleagues and other colleagues, the patient may still be in their room. So we wanna be able to adapt to moving the debriefing to a conference room or to a team work room or other areas that are, are quiet and away from the patient. 
At this point, we're beginning pilot testing of the tool. We've already started to engage stakeholders in multiple units, recognizing, as Paul and others have said, that having partners from nursing and other areas of key stakeholders is of paramount importance. We have also targeted other professionals, such as respiratory therapists, um, nursing assistants, or patient care assistants, depending on what they're called in different institutions. Um, nurse managers and the directors above the physician and nurse leaders at the unit level so that we can engage and partner with those who have quality and safety and issues, issues that touch, touch resuscitation and other aspects of critical situations throughout the hospital. And we want to really make this a tool that doesn't replace other people's workflows around quality and safety and doesn't replace other conversations around teamwork that need to happen, but really augments the conversations and all augments the safety work that others are already doing, augments the education that educators are already doing for physicians, nurses, and others, and finds a way to make the education, the teamwork, and the quality improvement more synergistic. Some of the foundation for what we've done with the CERN SQI is based on infrastructure we were fortunate enough to build during the early phases of COVID in our environment. So I think despite the tragedy and, and difficulty many of our colleagues have faced, and we, we to some degree have faced even in the pediatric environment where I work, I think that this experience with COVID has galvanized some of the appreciation we have for the, the needs that teams have to build resilience, to find ways to encourage team learning, and to find ways really, for lack of a better term, not to reinvent the wheel, right? The understanding that teams throughout a hospital will find new solutions to problems that occur, will find better ways to care for the patient, better ways to make the systems of care work for that patient and their safety, and to get those discoveries and those understandings that have been created by individual teams out to their colleagues so that they can take advantage of them as well and so that new systems can be built around them. So I'd like to tell you in a little bit of detail about our experience with the Discover tool, which was specifically developed for debriefing COVID-related events. And important to note that with this tool, we're not talking specifically about resuscitation. And in fact, the majority of times it's been used in our hospital have not been about resuscitation. We specifically aim this at logistical issues, PPE issues, patient flow issues, other things that at least in terms of our own team in the ER at Texas Children's, we hadn't necessarily targeted for debriefing. As Paul had mentioned, our earlier efforts with the CERN had been targeted at CPR, sometimes level one trauma resuscitations, frequently intubations for respiratory failure and other critical events the team identified. So with Discover, again, emphasizing team learning during COVID and emphasizing the ways that teams build their own resilience and the need of our teams to share these discoveries with each other. So Discover is debriefing in suspected COVID-19 to encourage reflection and team learning. And this is aimed at hot debriefing, but also has some provisions to do a post-shift huddle about multiple COVID patients um, or potentially to do a cold debrief, although that is not mainly how it's been used. We decided to adapt the discern tool for this, Paul's original plus delta format that we think aids novice debriefers or even untrained debriefers in conducting 
a useful debriefing that gets at practical needs of the team. But in this case, as I said, we wanted to get to some practical aspects of care and team functioning during COVID. So we chose some specific categories, logistics, meaning protective equipment, patient flow, what the room is like that the patient's going to, when it's ready, how we transport them safely through the hall if they might have an infection risk to other patients. Communication as well for the resuscitation aspects of COVID care. One of the big topics in many institutions has been what happens in the patient room and what happens outside and what team members need to be in the room and who can be kept outside to minimize infection risk and also to conserve PPE. We also chose to highlight team roles and responsibilities because some of those may be adapted a little bit differently during care of a COVID patient or suspected COVID patient. Um, and also medical management. We initially chose not to focus on medical management, but we received feedback from colleagues saying, hey, we wanna, we wanna talk about how to take care of the patient. We don't just wanna talk logistics. And so we broke out each of those categories for the plus part, what, what went well during the care of our patient, and also for the Delta, what could have gone better. And then at the bottom of the tool, we ended up emphasizing, um, asking teams to provide solutions they would like to share with other colleagues. So as the discern family of tools keeps on growing and um, migrates as the discover tool for the, during the COVID pandemic, a uh, team led by Jean-Christophe Servot, who's an ICU nurse in Belgium, who unfortunately is on shift today and can't be here to present his work. Um, he and I and others on the call here um, wanted to look beyond event debriefing, really looking at routine clinical debriefing that I um, learned from Dr. Laura Rock, who will be speaking next and really uh, got us thinking around routinizing these conversations, especially at a time when so many things were changing. So the discover phase is discovering uh, what's happening at the end of a shift. And we adapted the discern tool with some core ideas from the Center for Medical Simulation around the good judgment approach and incorporated technology to prevent exposure to COVID because like any patient safety intervention, we wanna make sure that it's causing more good than harm. Jean-Christophe being the lead debriefer for the project, we wanted to make sure that we were keeping him safe as well. And so the debriefing facilitator for this project connected either by telephone, WhatsApp, or a video system to emergency departments and ICUs throughout Belgium that were really dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic as it was emerging, um, maybe not as unknown as it was in China and in Italy, but really at the very beginning. And to share some of the key lessons, um, I think really summarized here is the that the debriefings that were done um, really paralleled the rising of the pandemic. So as we had more and more cases, people had more and more to talk about and were more willing to meet. And also as the program got um, as the program got situated the debriefing time really got to that 10 minute time that was presented in the earlier um, this discern reports. And so 
even though we changed around the different methods of delivering it, eventually we got to this nice 10 minute routine end of shift debriefing facilitated. And we kept that initial uh, form-based structure and gave scripting to the debriefer so they could have a straightforward standardized approach and the learners or participants, rather the clinicians could have an expectation of what the conversation would be about and the same form that provided the structure and guidance for the debriefer also served to collect the information that was then de-identified and transmitted to key leaders. Uh, I'm excited to build on um, the, this work of my colleagues and describe how um, and hopefully persuade that a really uh, brief, inexpensive, multidisciplinary series of conversations can improve patient safety, improve the patient experience, and reduce burnout. So I, I'd like to start with this premise to think about why debriefing matters. And the premise is that medical error, we know that medical, medical errors cause patient harm and death and that a lot of errors are grounded in communication failures. So better communication and teamwork will reduce medical errors and make patients safer. So the focus of an, an intervention to improve those things might be patient safety, learning, and relationships. And more specifically, I'm going to argue that in order, um, if you care about patient safety and clinical outcomes, patient experience, and cost, then you're gonna to need to care about the well-being of your workforce. So more specifically, when I set out to uh, institute a debriefing program in my hospital, I'm thinking, what is it I'm hoping that we're gonna get out of this? And it may seem like a lofty list, but um, what it boils down to is changing our culture and um, creating more connection, giving people more sense of agency and autonomy over their work, uh, uh, reducing patient harm inefficiencies and frustrations that led to those inefficiencies um, or in frustrations that stem from those inefficiencies and harm, a culture of continuous learning, an ability to speak up for patient safety, problem solving and peer support. And I think all of those are achievable with a pretty brief intervention. So why focus on well-being? Well, we know we have a mental health crisis and I have to um, warn you that some of these slides I'm gonna go through sort of quickly, but you can pause and read more of the details um, at your leisure. We know that uh, there are extremely high rates of burnout among nurses and doctors. Many have considered or are considering leaving practice and there are really high levels of vacancies among especially nurses. Doctors have among the highest suicide rate of all professions. And importantly, physicians are very unlikely to seek help. Here's an example of why mental health requires a community approach. So one survey from last year with a very large group of diverse physicians indicated that an alarmingly high number have thought or attempted suicide, thought about or attempted suicide most of those do not seek professional help and even would say that they would not participate in a program to reduce burnout if it was offered to them. Along those lines, um, there is a business case for promoting joy and working on wellness. And this is emphasized through the work of the um, Institute for Healthcare Improvement and especially um, in collaboration with the Mayo Clinic. 
and they found that there's a five to one return on investment for QI work related to joy. And that really has to do with changing culture. So Steven Swenson from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement um, really emphasized that in this quote, the most important leading indicator of excellence in patient care and superior organizational effectiveness is joy in work. The absence of joy in work is burnout. So how do we deal with burnout in our culture? Well, I feel like there's a, a lot of emphasis on personal resilience and developing grit and doing yoga and drinking kale smoothies and meditation. And while those activities, if they bring you joy and they make you feel calm, you will probably have better reactions to stress. But I feel that there is way too much emphasis on um, burnout and, and the stress related to our work that's placed on the individual. And we're missing an opportunity and really a responsibility by organizations and by our own work environments to change the way people feel by changing the culture. So how do we cultivate engagement and joy and create a culture of caring and um, build relationships and social connection? Uh, as you've heard from my colleagues um, in, this, in this presentation, and I'm, what I'm gonna hopefully argue is that one way to do that is through debriefing. So I got really interested in debriefing as a simulation um, uh, educator at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and a simulation um, instructor, instructor at the Center for Medical Simulation. And it was through these interprofessional conversations where people were able to perspective share in a way that they really had never um, done before that I thought really transformed their work environment. So through debriefing, we can have conversations that are integrated into our workflow rather than building on an already busy work day. We, they're sort of free. I, I would argue that these programs need to be supported and I can explain where I think the money should go. Um, I strongly believe that the debriefing promotes communication among team members. And I'm gonna argue that in a 10 minute conversation that we piloted, it really changed the way people spoke to each other for the other 23 hours and 50 minutes of the day. It's a way to build and sustain psychological safety and, and improve clinical processes and patient safety and improve peer support through informal conversations. So one program that really influenced me, um, Stuart already alluded to, which is this one published by Michael Rose and Catherine Rose. And um, once again, I'm going to leave a few slides with some of the details so that you can refer back to them later. But what they showed that was that in a very large program, they had dramatic clinical and psychological changes based on very brief conversations. So they um, debriefed um, nearly every single uh, surgical case that they had. And they've studied by the, by the time of, um, by this time they've, they've probably done almost 150,000 nearly consecutive surgical cases um, in this very large hospital group. And they um, have started with really simple questions like, how, did you notice any instances of harm? Could anything have been improved? And what they found was a dramatic decrease in 30-day mortality and uh, enormous um, financial savings. And um, ultimately, I think, 
what I take away from this work is that it's not really about a checklist. It's a shift from a technical program to a social one, which is something that they actually didn't expect and noticed throughout the, um, the initial debriefings that they did, that these conversations gave people a sense of agency, unleashed natural motivation by co-creating solutions and sharing stories with one another. Importantly, they followed up on every concern and problem and they analyzed root causes of inefficiency and ineffective care. And this is where I think the money comes in. So if you really want a debriefing program to be successful, people need to feel that what they say matters and that their concerns are addressed. And it takes time and money in order to do that. So this is the place where um, the resources might be needed in order to have a truly successful program. Transparency of um, conversation. So in the, in the Rose et al. study at McLeod, they actually did not de-identify um, their findings and they posted the highlights of every single debriefing um, every day, the morning after um, the day's debriefings. And um, created an environment where it's okay to um, share problems and complaints even um, with identified participants. And then they um, held themselves accountable. Um, so as Paul mentioned, um, this really involved everyone in the hospital from the CEO down. So inspired by that work um, and really interested in creating an environment where perspective sharing was promoted, um, I led a debriefing program that was funded by our insurance carrier last year, and it took place in the neuro ICU. We, the question I was asking is, is a routine short interprofessional team debriefing feasible? So we did an in-person 10 minute end of shift debrief every day for six weeks. The entire team of clinicians and staff were encouraged to attend, including the unit coordinator, which is what we call our secretaries, um, transport, the PCTs or nursing assistants. Um, if, if pharmacy would come, uh, were available, they would come. The chaplain sometimes came, social work, and all of the nurses and, and um, physicians, including residents, attendings, and fellows. And then um, what we were um, analyzing feasibility and reactions to the program. And then we really didn't anticipate having clinical changes in a six week period, but we actually did. So um, first I'll explain what the debriefing looked like. We actually did use trained social workers who were critical care social workers um, who, as the facilitators. And I think that there are pros and cons to um, having trained debriefing leaders as opposed to a team member. I think it may not be feasible for every program, but it did really help to have a neutral third party present who's also um, extremely skilled in picking up on nonverbal communication and promoting participation by all team members. Um, we started with introductions in every conversation, which did generate a little bit of eye rolling, but um, turned out in our interviews and surveys to be a really important component of the program because people actually ended up using names more and um, sometimes people said, I couldn't possibly ask this respiratory therapist name, I've been working next to her for three years. So um, people really liked that. And in the beginning of each week, we um, stated the basic assumption out loud, which is adapted from the Center for Medical Simulation, which you can read and promotes a concept of 
um, really getting curious about uh, our behaviors as opposed to um, feeling punitive. And then it was really kind of open. The facilitator would say, what's on your mind? Thoughts about today? Um, he or she might say, how are you holding up? And often the conversation just flowed from there, but then they had other um, triggering questions like, what went well today? What helped your team work well together? How could it be 1% better? Um, was there anything that could have improved the patient or family experience? Any safety issues? And there was no situation where all of these questions were asked. These are just simply suggestions that um, could uh, encourage conversation if it wasn't organically happening. What we, um, and then what we did with the debriefings was we, we shared highlights of all of the debriefings weekly and we followed up on the concerns and issues raised and the program was strongly supported by the nursing and medical leadership. And what we found uh, was we had 100% occurrence of the debriefings, which is really, um, I guess, kind of surprising because when we started our morning huddles in the ICU, it took a full year to get um, daily occurrence at, at, um, on time and particip participants actually coming and attending. Um, so that was really um, surpri uh, surprising and, and wonderful. And we tried to cut it off at 10 minutes. The average was nine minutes and the range was from four to 16 minutes. It was very well attended. Um, in each debriefing, an average of 6.4 people spoke. Interestingly, despite never asking them not to use phones and computers, we did not see, with the exception of a couple of seconds um, from a couple of attendings who received a text, none of the nurses or other participants and almost none of the physicians or anyone else um, were looking at their phones or computers and people were really looking at each other, engaged and um, conversing. And we did find dramatic um, clinical and teamwork improvements that had a meaningful impact on patients, on workflow efficiency and the experience of um, our teams. Based on that work um, and through collaborating with um, many colleagues around the world and particularly with Center for Medical Simulation, we developed a program, program called Circle Up which is um, which was recently published in the New England Journal of Medicine um, Catalyst. Um, and what this program is really aiming to do is balancing a process for um, problem solving and peer support through uh, planned uh, conversations and through um, throughout the day informal check-ins. And I'm gonna explain that in a bit more detail. So the program overview looks like this. It starts at the beginning of a shift with a briefing and, um, it end, and the shift ends with a debriefing or a huddle at the end of the day. And then throughout the day, there are micro check-ins um, in order to really create a culture of speaking up about how the day is going for you and opportunities to mutually problem solve. And, um, what, uh, what we found is that the, the briefings really set a tone for the day. And um, especially during COVID when this was really rolling out um, and we were working with these ad hoc teams, sometimes with people that we've never met before, it literally introduced people to who they're uh, managing these very large teams of patients with. And 
um, kind of created a little, some people said like a jolt of fun in the day and created a sense of caring that um, permeated the shift. The micro check-ins um, may come very naturally to some leaders and some colleagues, but um, they're written in as a reminder to create an environment where informal peer support happens. And then the debriefing is really meant to be an opportunity to reflect. So um, this is a proactive rather than reactive form of peer support. The briefing is a place to make a connection, set a tone for the shift and create kind of a situational overview for the entire team. And the debriefing is really more about um, reflection, learning, and again, peer support for the experience of that shift. And I just wanted to share, um, first of all, a guiding philosophy, which was really developed from the grounding kind of foundational philosophy at Center for Medical Simulation, which is through this work, we are holding ourselves to high standards while holding each other in high regard. And um, some, of, uh, some of, I think, what's really important to promoting any kind of successful debriefing is thinking about how people are physically um, engaged and able to talk to each other. So here's just an example taken from the internet of people talking, but it's, I'm hoping to illustrate here that people often talk either informally about their lives or their day or about patients, but they're often talking in silos and not across professions. Um, another example might look like this, where um, people are kind of huddled around computers, may or may not really be able to hear each other, aren't making eye contact. And what we're, what we're really going for is, is something more like this, where maybe not during COVID, um, hugging each other in a very small <laughs> space, but a, a feeling of connection where people can hear each other, see each other, and um, have a sense of really being listened to and heard. So um, one of the quote, here's a quote of one of our participants who, um, who was interviewed about the experience. And I'm gonna share some other ones. Um, some people said, I feel like I can more easily go and talk to any of the nurses and they talk to me way more than they did before. The debriefings provided a unit-based emotional catharsis way more than I expected or understood. I think people feel an amazing sense of connection because of this 10 minute conversation every day. We look forward to it. It's, it was amazing to th see things actually changes because, change because of what we said. At the end of a really tough day, it really helped transition to let the day go and feel like I don't have to keep thinking about it. Sharing it with the group was like a giant exhale. So um, ultimately, why does debriefing work? I think that all of these components that I listed in the beginning are addressed by different features of debriefing. There's a sense of camaraderie and trust and feeling valued because they're listened to and there's a place where their perspective is shared at, at a routine expected um, time of uh, each day. There's a feeling of control and innovation because they're being asked to problem solve together. There's greater feeling of meaning and purpose in the work, which is extremely important for promoting joy in the workplace and, and um, addressing burnout. And there's a feeling of confidence and pride in the work as they see um, their team problem solving and, and helping patients in a way that they weren't able to before. So uh, I am very biased, but I feel strongly that um, even in a 10 minute conversation or even shorter, 
um, it's possible to give people a much greater sense of connection and promote relationships and team building, which in turn makes patients safer through innovation and just through being able to bring more empathy and connection to our work. So, so I'm going to talk about some of the practical aspects of uh, creating a clinical event debriefing program, and hopefully it helps uh, anyone who's in the beginning stages or even in the later stages of your clinical event debriefing program. So let's start with some considerations in general. I think, um, especially if you're looking to start a new program and uh, where I'm at, we're actually uh, starting a, a new program in clinical event debriefing at my new hospital down here. You wanna think about what the overall goals are. Um, you wanna be realistic and create a timeline. Uh, you want to think about who your stakeholders are and uh, what kind of leadership buy-in you might need for support. And then, you know, obviously some of the details of the structure of that program that you're uh, hoping to create. So starting with um, some of that, you know, the why, that's the goals, the objectives, those are what are really most important to driving the development of your clinical event debriefing program or for, you know, making changes or enhancements to your current uh, existing program. And so thinking about, you know, is your program geared towards learning and improving patient care? Um, is it focusing on diffusing emotions and tension after high-risk clinical events? Or is it focused on uh, identifying latent safety threats or hazards uh, to patient safety in our systems, processes, and environments? Um, or your program might be a combination of the above, or you may have even have a different goal than one of the more common ones that you see here. Once you have those goals, then I think it's easy to um, start to create your project plan. Um, and having a project plan is kind of a logistical task, but I think it does help keep us all on track, especially uh, if you are already a busy clinician and you're trying to start a new program up. Um, I think having a realistic timeline is key. Um, and either creating a project charter or work breakdown structure, like you might see here in this example, can help you identify all the tasks and who's going to be the owner and your projected timelines. Um, and if you have the ability of having someone to kind of keep everything moving, uh, having a project manager, if your project is an institution-wide uh, initiative, I think is super helpful and key. But even if you don't have a project manager, um, you can make this happen. So the next step, once you've identified the why and you've created sort of a project plan, at least started your project plan, I think it's important early on to think about who might be your key stakeholders. And so um, obviously your key stakeholders are your frontline clinicians of the areas involved, um, other institutional staff, uh, social work, clergy, patient safety, maybe even your simulation experts, uh, if, you know, if, if they're not the ones in the lead of the program, um, you know, tapping into their uh, resources and expertise, I think can be really valuable. And then of course, thinking about who you need to get buy-in from um, and sort of, you know, getting their support, C-suite, uh, you know, leadership, physici other physicians, nurses, um, patient safety, or even HR representatives. Um, obviously the complexity of clinical event debriefing and the complexity of the institutions we work in all have key stakeholders that I think it's important to get their support, their buy-in and their input in how to make uh, the most robust program that you can. Once you sort of have that idea of your goals and you know who your stakeholders are, 
then I think it's super helpful to get an elevator pitch together. Um, so, you know, don't be afraid to go talk to those individuals, you know, have an ask if you have an ask, if you need support or resources, or if you just want to make it an awareness and, and sort of have the, uh, the teamwork support of those individuals, know what that elevator pitch is um, and, and don't be afraid to have it, uh, whether that's scheduling an appointment uh, to, to meet up with different individuals or if it's just a conversation in an elevator. Um, but by sort of thinking through what your bullet points are of what your program is, what you want to communicate to that particular individual, and then if there is any ask, what the ask is, having that ready at the forefront is going to, I think, help you get the most success uh, for your new initiative. So let's get into a little bit more details just really quickly on how to plan the specifics of that clinical event debriefing program that you're looking to develop or modify. Um, and again, throughout the presentation today, you guys have heard a million great examples. Uh, some have common themes, some have different uh, ways of approaching it. And so my goal is to give a really high level of just what are the things that you might want to think about when you're creating a new clinical event debriefing program. And so this is the list and this comes from uh, Dr. David Kessler's, uh, you know, a publication which is in the list earlier on on debriefing in the emergency department that I think has a really nice way to think about all the details that you want to consider when creating a clinical event debriefing program. So again, we talked about the why. That's probably most important to getting started. You need to know what your goals and objectives are. Then you need to think about the who. And part of that is like, who's going to facilitate, right? Is it gonna be a team leader or another team member? Um, is it going to include internal versus external team members? And you've heard examples of that uh, in the talk so far. Are you gonna have single versus multiple uh, facilitators or maybe no facilitators as you've heard in the example from talk? Um, and then are you going to train your facilitators or not train? Um, and again, there's pros and cons to each of these, but I think having a thoughtful um, dialogue and uh, you know decision will help you with the the most success. When it comes to training your debriefers, um, you know, I'm, I'm a proponent because I think if you can provide some type of training or support, it can may increase the effectiveness in that debriefing and the psychological safety of the debriefings. Um, I think it's important to also think about, um, you know, what is the culture and the level of expertise in debriefing of your teams that may or may not help you make that decision whether or not you want to provide some type of training for your facilitators. And then there's the other part of who, which is the participants, right? So um, all team members, uh, I think it's ideal as much as possible who actively participate in the clinical event um, should be invited to participate, I think, in that event. And so the goal may be to get as many team members as possible. Of course, this is a challenge uh, in our busy clinical environments. And so um, other factors may play into that. Um, and then you have to think about if you're going to involve others who maybe didn't participate in that event um, or in that experience that day, if it's the end of shift, um, you know, who else to include? Does that impact psychological safety, depending on who those members are? And then something else I always like to think about uh, is, you know, whether or not we want to include our parents or patients, if that's even feasible or possible. How does that impact the debrief um, and the content? 
And then um, after you've thought about the who, then is the what, right? So um, first, uh, when it comes to the what of your clinical event debriefing program, I think it's important to think about your triggers. So what types of events or situations are you going to debrief? And so um, again, clinical events are unpredictable and complex. You've heard some examples today about how uh, standardizing your triggers can be helpful. Um, you've also heard some examples of how, you know, we we once we standardize those triggers, it helps folks to not think about the fact that clinical event debriefing is only something to be done uh, when things go wrong, right? We can learn from how things go well. And so thinking about uh, what your triggers are, standardizing them can help uh, our clinicians to be prepared and anticipate debriefings, hopefully increases participation and frequency, but hopefully also helps to decrease the burden of a concern of something going wrong. And that's why we're debriefing and hopefully enhances psychological safety and really dialogue relationships and conversation. The second aspect of the what is also what content you're going to discuss. And this will go back, of course, to your goals and objectives for your program. So are you gonna have a qualitative or a quantitative focus or a blend of both? Um, are there specific cognitive, technical, behavioral skills uh, related to clinical events that you want to include in those debriefings? And is there going to be a specific dialogue related to systems issues or patient safety uh, issues as they arise? And so after you've talked about the what, you also need to think about where, where to debrief. It seems rather simple, right? Um, but really uh, when I, we've tried to develop debriefing programs, this has actually been an area of hot debate. Um, do we debrief right in that clinical environment where the event occurred? Is that possible or feasible? Um, you know, that may or may not be private. It could compete with patient care, um, but it may help getting all your uh, clinicians in that debriefing could also uh, facilitate identification of safety issues or systems issues because you're right there in that environment. Or do you want to consider debriefing in a location that's still on site, but not exactly where the event occurred? Maybe that enhances confidentiality and privacy, um, could allow for maybe more emotional you know, stress to be diffused um, because you're outside of that same environment where you just had the event. Um, could allow for more technology to enhance the debriefing. And clearly with our uh, being in COVID right now, uh, thinking about how technology can support your ability to debrief may be important. And then the last option is, you know, is it gonna be offsite? And this is typically done more often when it's a cold or a retrospective debriefing, but um, something to think about in your program as well, where, whatever the timing is. So that brings us to timing, um, you know, again, are you looking to develop a program that is immediate, like a hot debrief? Typically, those are shorter timeframes. Or are you looking to develop a program that involves more retrospective, uh, you know, debriefing with a cold, what we call typically a cold debrief? Um, again, there's pros and cons to each of these, and maybe your program is going to be a combination of both. Um, so again, there's no one way to do this. These are just things to think about so that you can have a plan moving forward as you roll out your debriefing program. And then you want to think about how. So, you know, how is that debriefing going to look? Um, and there's some, you know, basic things to think about. How to establish psychological safety in your debrief? Um, are you going to use a script or a tool? And then the structure. And so just briefly about psychological safety, we've heard some of this from our speakers today. 
um, you know, there are different ways to do this. So you may want to discuss, you know, the confidentiality. What is the confidentiality level of your debriefing? Um, does that help your staff to feel safe in speaking up about difficult topics? Um, you may use the Center for Medical Simulation, the basic assumption as a concept to be able to help promote and make that stance at the beginning of your debrief that this is going to be a mutually respectful professional debriefing and we want everyone to feel safe to speak up. Um, and again, curiosity is something we heard today from Dr. Laura Rock and how important that can be to help everyone to feel comfortable to talk about the things that go well and the things that may not go so well. Some other tips, you know, don't be, don't forget to thank your clinicians for being present and uh, don't forget to remind them the purpose of the debriefing, whatever that is, and uh, remind everyone that participation is welcomed and encouraged. And that's how we can all unite much, much uh, more easily together. So then let's talk about this tools and scripts. So you heard a lot of examples of tools and scripts today. Um, you may not use a script. You may just have an open-ended discussion, um, may or may not be led by a trained debriefer. So again, a non-scripted debrief can be very effective. Uh, a lot of times folks use the plus delta format for those um, because it's quick, convenient, easy to use. You talk about the things that went well, the things that we'd like to change, and then how we might change them. And so that could be, you know, really not a true uh, complex script, but just some basic framework to guide you if you're not scripting your debriefs. Or you may have a script or tool that you use, like the examples we heard today. And so when you're thinking about a script, if you're creating your own, think about, you know, what content that script might have. And the data or the questions can come from different sources, such as you know, the actual events of the situation and behaviors that happened, or unique events that were unusual, or even what the clinicians find important. Um, and so again, there's lots of sources for your scripted questions. They can be very specific, or they can be very open-ended and broad, depending again on your goals. And then think about though, with any debriefing program that you're starting up, how to have uh, a structure to it. So again, uh, a lot like simulation uh, debriefing, simulation-based debriefing, we think about phases, right? And a structure. So you may or may not follow this exact structure, but this I think just gives us all a general framework to work within. There can be that initial phase or reactions phase. Um, which can have different goals, you know, again, letting everyone have that emotional release, establishing psychological safety. Um, maybe that's where you have some scripted uh, dialogue to share before you get started and orienting the, the, the clinicians into the goals of the debrief. Then you may have a descriptive phase, um, depending on the need to review what actually happened in that situation and then get into the uh, more analysis or understanding phase where we're going through what happened and why and identifying potential gaps um, and solutions, right? And safety issues or latent safety threats that we want to report from a systems perspective. And then if you have time, hopefully a summary phase. Um, and I think one of the messages that I heard today from our different uh, experts presenting today is the idea of having actions, takeaways and making sure those are followed up with the clinicians um, you know, after the fact so that they know the issues they, they, um, they raised were, were taken seriously and mattered. So in conclusion, um, I think, uh, I hope that each of you will think about as you're thinking about creating a clinical event debriefing program or enhancing your already existing one, um, there, are, there are benefits to clinical event debriefing as we heard from the literature in so many ways. Um, don't be afraid to take a strategic, slow and deliberate approach 
to help with successful implementation of your program. Uh, also, don't forget to identify outcome measures to look at the impact of your program. And of course, one of the things that I always remind myself, it's okay uh, to modify, to improve, to change the course as you go. Um, you know, there's more than one way to debrief, especially when it comes to clinical events. Thank you. Well, I am so impressed with what everyone has presented and I'm so thankful that we got a chance to all meet up here today. <clears throat> I'd like to invite uh, the panelists here for any wrap up and takeaways that they might have. Uh, and I'd like to start by inviting Paul Mullen uh, to give us his uh, brief summary. And, um, and I look forward to talking with everyone in the future. Please be in touch. We'll have contact information. Um, and thank you so much for attending our session. Paul. Thanks, Damien. Yeah, this has just been such a tremendous opportunity today. I think if you've made it this far in our video, it's a pretty good chance that you probably are your clinical settings local debriefing champion in the making. And I just uh, really want to encourage you. Yeah, I think what we've seen today, uh, it was amazing to see Christina, Luigi, and Esther just talk about that talk foundation and how much it's grown. I think you gain a lot of momentum from having other debriefing enthusiasts around you. So I really encourage you to reach out to any of us or other people in your environment who are really into debriefing, because that really gets the momentum going. I also want to say, I think what Laura mentioned about just uh, having courage to get these programs going for the right reason is so critical. All of us on this call, I promise you, have faced so many barriers and resistance to culture change because change is hard. And I just really want you to just stay focused on your ultimate goal of improving that patient care. I think it could not only save your patients' lives, but those of the people around you, maybe even your own. I think just can't emphasize enough how important it is to get debriefing and just to improve our medical culture um, as we all move forward. So just want to encourage you uh, as you move forward. We've got a ton of resources, not only from this video, but in the reference list. I encourage you to go through that and just really see what you find helpful. And again, uh, reach out to any of us or other people involved in this debriefing. Good luck. Thanks, Paul. That really captures the spirit. And I would like to invite anyone who is interested in any final comments, not required, but if anybody else does want to uh, share any final comments, uh, Laura, I see your hand, so go for it. Uh, I just want to say, it, just as, as Paul mentioned, it can be so daunting to, it might seem small to say, hey, everybody, let's circle up or let's, let's talk for a few minutes about our shift, but it can be really kind of terrifying, um, even if you're an extrovert like me. Um, so I would suggest starting small and making sure you have one or two buddies in the group who are going to like support you. And, and if you start with something really small, like, you know, let's make sure we do introductions at the morning huddle or at the end of the day, just say, you know, just for today, we're going to say, you know, how's the day? And that's it. And, and just start with something really small and you can build on it. But, um, you know, you don't have to feel like you're going to take on a whole new radical briefing or debriefing program in one day. It's been such a wonderful um, team that has presented today. I, I feel so privileged to be part of this and invigorated and, and energized. And I hope you feel the same way. It's just fantastic to hear what everybody's doing. And I think that that transfers across to yourself as a participant in this workshop. Different tools have been described today. 
And I think there is no right or wrong way to do this. The, the, the way to do it is whatever you can make happen in your clinical environment. And so you might take bits of each of these processes. You may need training, you may not, it doesn't matter. But just if you feel that this is something that fits for you, go forward, please, and, and go and do it. No matter what it takes, just try and get that process going. It is so worth it. Thank you.